You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. We're excited to announce that our very own podcasting platform, Zencaster, has become a new sponsor to the show. Check out the podcast discount link in our show notes and stay tuned for why we love using Zen for the podcast. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. You're listening to the Archaeology Show. TAS goes behind the headlines to bring you the real stories about archaeology and the history around us. Welcome to the podcast. Hello and welcome to the Archaeology Show, episode 138. On today's show, we talk about an underwater Neolithic site, Clovis Points in Michigan, and a Polish sword horde. Let's dig a little deeper. Welcome to another news episode, everybody. Hello. So we've got three articles for you. And in case anybody is following our travels, we're still <laughs> in Washington State. We're in the southern part of Washington State, about to cross into Oregon as soon as we finish this podcast and get mm-hmm. going. Yep. So, Heading south. Yep. We're at another harvest house near Battleground, Washington, called La Uva Fortuna Farms. Doesn't that mean like the egg farm? Fortuna means luck, I think. The lucky egg farm? Maybe. Because uva. Yeah. Isn't that like egg? I don't know. You're don't putting know. me on the spot here. I'm not sure. You are Italian. Okay. A hundred years ago, my family came here. Come so. on. All right. So <laughs> anyway, it's a pretty cool place. They got lots of different things here, like 12 RV spots. And we had a good meal last night with some friends. And it's a good time. So. Yeah, definitely enjoyed it. Let's talk about something completely different. The Croatian coast, a yeah. place we also would like to RV, but probably won't be able to. <laughs> I mean, we certainly won't so. be able to bring this one. No. Maybe we could get one in Europe. That would be super sweet. I don't know, though. Could you imagine driving like a long RV yes. bus around European town? I think it's more van life. Yeah. Over there. Yeah. I think yeah. you got to do the van life thing. Rent a van and do it. Yeah. So. <laughs> All right. So this first article is entitled, Archaeologists Discover 6,000 year old island settlement off Croatian coast. And again, I thought this was super cool just because Croatia sounds like an amazing place to go. Oh, I know. I'd love to go there. And the photos are beautiful as usual. Absolutely. And Mm -hmm. this kind of also fills, I guess, some dreams of mine because I have been known to, usually in response to something we're watching on TV or something like that, I'll pull up maps just like maps on my iPhone and start looking around at something, trying to find something. And then like an hour's gone by and I'm just looking at maps. <laughs> You're just like looking at like the satellite image yeah. of places. <laughs> just places. And I'm not even really looking for anything. I'm not, I have no expectations. Yeah. I just like to see what things look like from that perspective. And so does Mate Perica, uh, the archaeologist. And I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. Check out the link in the show notes. But he was looking at satellite images of Croatia's coastline. Doesn't say why he was doing it. Probably for the same reason. Uh, there's lots of stuff under the water. Yeah, I, I do wonder if he was doing it on purpose, though, because I think it's yeah. pretty it's pretty common knowledge that you can use satellite images sometimes yeah. to find things that you wouldn't be able to see if you were on the ground. Right. Now, I think you have to be careful with that, because wasn't there like some nonsense about like people finding 
pyramid in jungles and like they weren't nah. actually and it was they weren't actually undiscovered like, yeah well like, there's that know about them <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah so so anyway uh you have to be careful about that right but i think there is a lot of stuff that you can find just by looking at satellite images well i think the moral of that that story is if you do find something that looks like it could be obscured or maybe it's in a it's in an area and you're like man is anybody like can I really be the only one that has possibly seen this? Right. Because I think people jump to two conclusions. They either think somebody else must have seen this and then they move on, mm-hmm. right? Or they're like, wow, am I the first one to look at this? In either case, you need to check. Mm-hmm. You need to tell somebody that can that can look at the records and say, yeah, we, we know this exists or we don't. And then, you know, let them proceed. Yep. Talk to so, an expert is definitely your first. Yeah. If you're not the expert yourself. Right. Talking to an expert is your first step i know and that we'll talk about the rest of the article here in a second but that was kind of the big takeaway for me is just be observant and looking at maps is super fun and cool especially satellite images Mm -hmm. and it's just really neat to honestly really take a look at that stuff and dive in another interesting note too i actually don't have a lot of experience with google maps on my phone but with apple maps the zoom limit to how far you can actually pinch in is actually pretty high. Mm-hmm. Uh, high altitude, I should say. It's not that close. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. And one For thing sure. I noticed, because another thing I like to do, like right before bed, we're laying in bed, I usually get on Weather Channel <laughs> and like look at Weather Channel videos. <laughs> I don't know if you should admit that to I people. know. <laughs> but another thing I like to do is just go to the radar. And when the radar is on satellite image and you're zooming in, I noticed actually not long ago that the zoom is is ridiculously close like it's actually really good Mm -hmm. because i think they don't i don't know if they just don't expect people to do that i I don't know why they would care but anyway it's it's really good so honestly the the weather channel (laughs) satellite images are will get you a lot closer to the ground so it might be that you have to be connected to the internet to look at the weather channel and apple maps can be used offline right so well, maybe it's no. a caching thing it actually can't be the satellite images need to be online oh they do otherwise okay. they don't load yeah okay. so okay. i think that apple just made an arbitrary limit and said we're going here yeah, so. yeah okay anyway back to the article this is in lombares croatia and the eastern shore there's a seabed jutting out from the eastern shore of the island of corcula k-o-r-c-u-l-a and literally type in corcula on apple maps or google maps and it will take you right there and Mm -hmm. if you go to the article you'll see the image that he was looking at weirdly it's reversed because a lot of your maps are north up and it's actually south up, I think. Oh. Because I, I, when I found it on maps, it's inherently north up unless you change it. And it was facing the other direction. Oh, crazy. Yeah. <laughs> that is, it must have gotten loaded into the website upside down and or, wasn't fixed or something. Or somebody just loaded it that way. I don't know. Uh, yeah. 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 Maybe this person who wrote the articles in Australia and all their maps are, are, are south up. Who knows? I don't really know. Maybe North <laughs> Up's just a Northern Hemisphere thing. I have no idea. Who has any idea? Nobody. <laughs> so anyway, check that out because it's super cool. You can literally go right there on the map and see it. And and I thought that was really neat. But anyway, it's a large shallow area uh, on the seabed jutting out from the eastern shore of the island, like I said. And him and a colleague, actually, the archaeologist and a colleague, dove the area and discovered uh, what they think is a Neolithic settlement from about 4500 B.C., which is pretty sweet. And just looking at this, I wouldn't have really thought it was anything uh, except for like a reef or something like that. It didn't really jump out at me. And, And looking at stuff like this 
also makes your eye a little more critical to find stuff like that because now when I'm scrolling maps in the middle of the night and <laughs> I'm trying to get to sleep, like I'm looking for stuff like this. Yeah, you totally. Because and that's that's artifact identification and feature identification as well. You just need to see lots of examples of the thing, and then you start training your brain and training your eyes to to get to it. Mm-hmm. So we always we always say that when we go on survey, it's like oh if I haven't seen these types of artifacts in a while, you got to kind of get your survey eyes in yeah. and train them, retrain them again. Yeah. Make sure you're looking for the thing that you're supposed to be looking for. Yeah. Yeah. I thought this was really interesting because it's a Neolithic site or settlement that is underwater. Right. Mm-hmm. And that is something that I think is pretty common around all the coastlines around the world because of the raising and lowering Water levels, obviously, with the melting of Ice Age and all that stuff, right? I just figured it was Neolithic dive gear. No. <laughs> um, no. Right. So, Atlantis. anyway, I just, I think that's really interesting to focus on the coastlines like that to find these sites that are, I'm not going to say better preserved than the ones on land. Maybe they are. Water can sometimes preserve really well and sometimes it can actually make things deteriorate worse. But mm-hmm. I just think it's such an interesting area of of exploration where we can find things that maybe we haven't been able to find on land. Water is just, it's neat. And I know that there are underwater archaeologists. There's probably a lot of you guys out there. So <laughs> keep on doing the good work. But I feel like we don't hear as much about it as as you do like terrestrial archaeology. So I wish we would because it's cool. And I mentioned, well, they found some stone walls and, and things like that surrounding it. And presumably when they get in there, they'll find a lot of other stuff. But I mentioned Atlantis, jokingly, just a second ago. But one of the basis arguments for the Atlantis myth is, well, A, I think uh, one of the older, was it Ptolemy or somebody, actually wrote about yeah. some kind yeah. of thing. And so people have been searching for it ever since. Right. But... One of the reasons we know that it's almost completely unrealistic is because the march of human cognition and evolution and technology and and everything like that was kind of the same in this part of the world. Like the Neolithic at 4500 BC is probably really similar to the Neolithic in other areas. Right. And, and people that are in the, quote, Neolithic are not necessarily, you know, doing crazy things. Now, not long after this, they started building pyramids. Mm-hmm. So, you know, not these guys, but... Some, some civilizations did. rapidly right. advanced but from this point. Here's the problem. When you get to something that is fantastical as Atlantis was supposed to be, the glaciers have already pretty much melted and your sea levels are not rising at nearly the rate that they would be when it was 4500 BC and now this is underwater. Mm-hmm. So to have an entire city, a coastal city inundated with water, it would have to have been like a city you know 4000 years ago yeah. or more yeah. and we just didn't have people building those types of cities that Atlantis is supposed to be at that time right. if they if it was 2000 years later and maybe the glaciers were still melting well I'm sure they still were but you know the sea levels just weren't rising at the rate that they were before so it just makes the whole thing a little unrealistic and this unless the, you bring magic and aliens in I mean if you bring <laughs> aliens in then they easily could have had a coastal settlement 10,000 years ago that is now underwater To be clear we are not proponents of that theory I'm just saying if aliens existed <laughs> and they visited and made a city it would be underwater if it were on the coast I mean it would make sense Yeah it would 100% be underwater right now pretty much anywhere in the world Right And there's places like off the coast of California that are under you know, a hundred feet or more of water and Washington and Oregon because of the shelf over there. Right. That 
actually had people living on it, you know, 8,000 years ago. Yeah. So... That's why I'm so intrigued by coastline archaeology. Yeah. I don't really want to dive and do it myself, but right. I love hearing the results of what other people are doing with it. It tells me that if we ever invent time travel, and we're going to go back in time, and you don't want evidence of your, like if you have a base of operations, mm-hmm. put it on the coast. Yeah. Because you It'll know be it underwater. will actually be underwater. Yep. Yeah. So... All right. Good advice for future time travel. So Love it. Our time travel statement for the day has been met. <laughs> We're going to end this podcast now. Oh, my God. Yeah. So Where's your nerdy reference? I know, right? <laughs> so, I, again, check this out. Go look at maps. Have fun. It's super cool. Yeah. So. There's like in the article, there's a little slideshow with a couple images. All right. And there's some cool pictures there, too, to check out. And, and actually, like the grid over the excavation underwater which is really neat to see mm-hmm. how they grid that stuff out and then work on it basically just like you would on land but it's underwater and i, I imagine things move around a little bit more than, than they would like but it still is, yeah. is neat how they do that yeah it's pretty cool you gotta wonder how much of that's in context anyway just from five thousand years of being underwater yeah you know? yeah definitely water so. moves things around a lot anyway let's move from Croatia to a much older time period and up in Michigan. And oddly enough, this isn't underwater because it's on land now, but there's plenty of underwater sites in that area under the Great Lakes as a result of also glacial melting. Back in a minute. Chris Webster here for the Archaeology Podcast Network. We strive for high quality interviews and content so you can find information on any topic in archaeology from around the world. One way we do that is by recording interviews with our hosts and guests located in many parts of the world all at once. We do that through the use of Zencaster. That's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R. Zencaster allows us to record high quality audio with no stress on the guest. Just send them a link to click on and that's it. Zencaster does the rest. They even do automatic transcriptions. Check out the link in the show notes for 30% off your first three months or go to zencastr.com and use the code TAS. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. Welcome back to episode 138 of the Archaeology Podcast. And as promised, we are going to Michigan in the United States where a, what did they call him in the article? It's an amateur archaeologist, but that's what we oh, honestly we would call him. But he was a self-taught researcher. Self-taught researcher. <laughs> so no, that's not what they called him. Hold on, independent researcher. Independent researcher, right? Yeah. Not disparaging amateur archaeologists or avocational archaeologists or anything like that. But I think they're just giving him another term because archaeologist implies we don't have any certification or anything like that. But it does imply some sort of educational 
level, I would say. Just like you wouldn't call yourself a physicist, even if you have a particle accelerator in your basement, unless you basically have a physics degree. Right. It's not like other things, right? right? So anyway, this guy, he he likes to, to go over plowed fields. And yeah. plowed fields in the Midwest and the upper Midwest, which I guess technically is what Michigan is. Plowed fields, well, fields are plowed all the time because most of the landscape is farmland. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of stuff that's sitting not that far below the surface. And plows will pick up stuff from, you know, sometimes a foot or more below the surface. They'll Mm -hmm. just churn it up. I think probably more than that in some cases. Yep. And so one of the ways that you can start finding where things are is to walk a plowed field after it's recently been plowed and Mm -hmm. see if you find anything. Now, things could be dragged all over the place. Yeah. Um, they're probably not going to be dragged by like the farm equipment itself, but it could be moved by other animals that come through there, livestock, stuff like that. So if you find something, there's a half decent chance that there's other stuff like it nearby mm-hmm. and you need to do more ob- observation through walking and then, of course, excavation. Yeah, it's just a good like way to identify sites without having to do like shovel testing or anything like that because yeah if you get a get a group of artifacts in an area in a plowed field then like okay well there might be more below that right yeah so a little bit of context here before we start talking about what he found a lot of michigan was covered in a wall of ice up to a mile high and i believe that ice sheet was called the wisconsin ice sheet i'm pretty sure it covered the entirety of the great lakes and then into new england Mm -hmm. and in fact that's what carved out the great lakes was that ice sheet advancing and retreating Mm -hmm. so but a mile thick uh, just i just let that sink in for a second insane yeah crazy so one of the one of the cool things just to mention if you've ever heard the term i love this term it's called isostatic rebound and didn't have anything to do with here but it's probably why this isn't underwater now is because that ice was super heavy it actually compressed the 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 earth's crust underneath it and isostatic rebound is the slow rise in elevation as the landscape comes back and if i'm not mistaken it's still coming up as the glacier retreat the land kind of slowly slowly bounces back up. and glaciers retreat and melt at the same time that's how they retreat they just melt and so yeah so the and if i'm not mistaken the land is still not fully done with its isostatic rebound hmm because it was compressed by so much. I don't know if they can tell how far down the land went, and they probably can, but they, they noted it's still moving, if I'm not mistaken. Mm. So anyway, 13,000 years ago. The campsite was dated to around that time, and, and this portion was obviously not under ice, but had to have been dramatically influenced by the ice. I kind of think of it as... Here's my pop culture reference for the episode, <laughs> a Game of Thrones thing where you're like sitting next to the wall in the north because that was basically ice. Right. <laughs> it's like, who's just living at the base of that? Right. That's what I felt like this was. I'm mean, a mile high. That would have been a mountain of ice in the distance. Yeah. I mean, literally a mountain of yeah, ice. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And, and this is a really flat land. You would have seen that ice. I'm sure it tapered out like all glaciers do. It mm-hmm. wasn't just like, bam, ice like a for wall. a mile. Right. Yeah. So if it was a mile thick, it probably tapered out for easily 20, 30 miles in front of it, mm-hmm. you know, before it came out to nothing. Right. So anyway, the campsite, like I said, was dated to around that time. It was identified by this gentleman initially finding what we call Clovis artifacts. And these are stone tools with distinctive shape and construction. And mm-hmm. Clovis tools have been found all over North America, all over South America. Mm-hmm. And that that technology is really what's referred to as Clovis. I don't think anybody... I don't think anybody personally really thinks of the Clovis as a people, 
Because they were all over both continents? Yeah, it's more called like the Clovis tradition or technology yeah, or whatever. Exactly. And it really just refers to like the fluted shape down the center of it. Yeah. That, that's like the main characteristic that ties all of these points together. It even could have been independently developed, really. Like, Yeah. Like it probably grew from group to group, but... Yeah, it, and it could have been, like you said, one of the reasons why this particular projectile point, we call it, is, I guess, popular at that time is because the megafauna that still lived in this area of the world hadn't gone extinct yet. Right. Uh, there's many hypotheses as to why we don't have megafauna anymore. Some say it was overhunting and some say it was just the world changed. Yeah. And and they just couldn't live couldn't in that world it. anymore. Yeah. yeah. So I, I would imagine it's probably a mixture of both. But the megafauna were of course huge yeah and you you used bow and arrow hadn't been invented yet but i don't right. think an arrow unless you had like you you see african tribes people and, and ethnographic evidence of it of them taking down like elephants and stuff like that but they do it with arrows and spears and the arrows you know there's 50 of them they're right. just firing all at them so that would have to be something like that but you could take down bigger animals with fewer people if you had spears with big huge tips on them mm -hmm. and those are clovis points yeah. and other types of points too um, but clovis technology and that flute going down the middle from the base up is useful for hafting onto a spear tip because mm -hmm. you just split the wood on the end you slide this point down on top of it you wrap some sinew around it and you know some like fat from an animal and and stuff to kind of solidify it all and you've got a an awesome spear tip yeah pretty sturdy and yeah. It's exactly what you need. Big fear for big animals, right? Yeah. Like, I think, generally speaking, when you look at projectile point sizes throughout history, they, they just get smaller and smaller as we go through time because game was getting smaller mm -hmm. and, you know, they just didn't need to put as much time and effort into these big points because that's the other thing about them. Is they're, they're beautiful and they're well constructed, but they're big. They must have taken a long time right. to make. Yeah, and not only did the animals get smaller, but the technology got a little bit better, too, with the invention of the bow and arrow. Oh, true, yeah. So, and a bow can shoot a projectile, and, and even like a crossbow, can shoot a projectile at a very high rate of speed, but you're not going to put a big, heavy tip on the end of that. Right. You're just not, because yeah. you've got a wooden shaft, you need a smaller point, it's going to be going much faster, and it's going to, you know, enter into the prey, but you also need to be able to kill that, so. Yep. Anyway, this is thought to be the earliest site in Michigan now, and as with lots of articles, it's rewriting the story, <laughs> as I think every archaeological site should. <laughs> like, if it didn't rewrite the story, what are you doing? Yeah. Right? So, Why are you even reporting on what's it? What's going on here? <laughs> yeah. So, anyway, there's some other stuff in here that I guess I don't I don't really know a whole lot about this area, just professionally. And I'm, these statements seem a little bit dubious to me, but they said the site was likely occupied by a small group of people who briefly lived on a river in southwest Michigan. Now, you can see evidence of rivers. You know where they are. There's no river there right now, but uh, rivers meander in that type of soil. Mm -hmm. So there could have been a river there before, and we know how to find the previous meanders of rivers. But previous evidence had found that Michigan was practically uninhabitable at this time and that there was little evidence that the people using the Clovis tradition mm -hmm. had settled there. And the actual the article actually says that the Clovis has in there a people, but I think I want to get away from saying that, like I said. Yeah. And that's because it was covered in a glacier, right? Yeah. So like there was no habitable land that we right. knew knew about. Right. But apparently that was wrong. 
Apparently it was. Mm-hmm. So, and it just it just goes to say that this portion was either not covered by the glacier or was maybe on the fringe and as the melt started to happen was one of the earliest places mm-hmm. exposed. And in front of the glacier was a great place to be yeah. because you had really fertile soils. They didn't have agriculture yet, but things could grow there that yeah. they could hunt and forage. They could forage for. Yeah, and the game worth there yeah. to eat. So exactly. follow the animals that you're that you're killing. Well, there probably would have been excellent fresh water just pouring off the melting glacier. Yeah, yeah. and it would have been probably a, a pretty decent place to be. Mm-hmm. So. Anyway, this site is known as the Belson site. They're usually named after either the person that found it or the landowner. And I think in this case, it's the landowner. I believe so. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, this is what I was looking for earlier. They said this was probably a smaller camp, but they said they think this is a short-term camp by a group that likely split off from a main group. And I'm not... I don't know if they, if they have evidence that people lived in bigger groups back then. Maybe that's the case. And this was a smaller like hunting party or mm-hmm. something like that. Then maybe. But I'm not really sure where that evidence comes from. It sure seems like we're getting into hypothesis territory there. And sometimes archaeologists can speak with a lot of authority about things mm-hmm. that are that are all the hypotheses. And one thing we should say about this article, too, we have an article that's a quick overview and then we also have a longer article that is more in depth and then that links to the actual academic paper that was written Mm -hmm. however the paper is behind a paywall so we didn't get to read that actual like academic paper so we were we're basically reporting on what's in these articles yeah indeed so thomas talbot is the name of the self-taught researcher that found this initially and he found his first Clovis point in 2008 on a farm and when he found the piece over here they just kept walking it and found more and more pieces over a short period of time and then realized that he had multiple Clovis components and then did the right thing and contacted the proper experts to come out there which they of course had him helping out and 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 you know working on the excavation with him yeah which is really neat yeah. i like the enthusiasm behind somebody like that and then mm-hmm. he did the right thing by bringing in the researchers and then they let him help it seems like it was a really great relationship from that perspective yeah oh also i think one of the clovis points that he found it was in two pieces and he found the two pieces <laughs> yeah. at different times, Yeah, but they clearly went back together. So I think that was really good evidence that there mm-hmm. was a larger site when you find two pieces disconnected, but refitting. Yeah. So that was neat. Yeah. And, and along those lines, a lot of that stuff in the plow zone was just spread out. Could have been broken by the plow. Mm, could be. You know, yeah. who knows? I, yeah. They probably did some research on it. You can kind of tell those sorts of things. You can tell if it's been broken for 5,000 years yep. or was broke five years ago. Yeah, exactly. It'll be real worn if it's an old break. Yeah. They did find two distinct artifacts well below the plow zone, which tells them that they're in a primary context. Mm-hmm. So that's pretty cool. Yep. To date, as of when this article was written, August 23rd, 2021 is when it came out, they found more than 20 tools and hundreds of pieces of debitage. And debitage is the flaking remains of making a tool. Mm-hmm. So when you crack off the little rocks, the flakes, it, the whole assemblage of flakes that come off of that in that process is called debitage. Yeah, exactly. Like you yeah. have to shape a point in a very specific way and it makes these waste pieces that are very specifically shaped. And we know yeah. exactly what we're looking at when we see one. Yeah, debitage is also known by debit age if you're typing this into Microsoft Word. <laughs> That's what it will autocorrect debit to. Age. Yes. <laughs> One interesting thing that I'm glad they mentioned in the article, and I, I first found a popular article, actually our producer found a, a popular article about this, and that linked to the University of Michigan press release on it, which actually is a much more thorough 
article with a pretty cool YouTube video on there talking about it. So definitely take a look at that. But one of the things I'm glad they mentioned, because you have to you have to note the discrepancies, is that the points here were very similar to another set of early points called gainy points. Oh. G-A-I-N-E-Y. They also have a flute running up the center, and they're also spear points. There were other Clovis-like points mm-hmm. in different parts of the world. And whenever we see a certain shape and we see that flute, we go Clovis. Mm-hmm. But like you said, it's probably the right technology at the right time. And we see technology like that developing, and it could be cultural transmission. One person figures it out, another person finds it or meets them or something like that. And they're like, hey, I want to make these too. You know, a lot of people back then were flint napping experts because they had to be, mm-hmm. you know, it's like I'm an expert at spreading peanut butter on bread because, <laughs> you know, that's what I do. Because you need to to survive. I need to to survive. So, you know, back then you would have been an expert at flint napping, at gathering, at knowing where things are. Right. So, right. you know, but anyway. It could have. It was just the right technology at the right time to kill the right kinds of things. And these gainy points could have been produced by similar people that came over with the Clovis technology or something like that. And, mm-hmm. and there's always slight modifications. So I'm sure it's related. Yeah, definitely. And I think the point here is that the style of, of spear point mm-hmm. is old. It's very old. It's really for, old. For me, the takeaway is that probably the prehistory of Michigan goes back farther than anybody realized. And this site is helping them yeah. figure out what those dates are, but it's old. Whether yeah. it's Clovis or Ganey or something entirely new, it, it's very old and it takes the prehistory back further, which is cool. One really cool thing that, and they're still researching these, is that the two different styles of points, Clovis and Ganey, they have very distinct flaking characteristics. That's one thing I did note that when we're talking about different technologies being developed, but parallel evolution of technology as well. You can tell that it's definitely cultural in some cases when you see two different styles of the same kind of thing. So these are both spear points that are fluted, but Clovis points have large flakes taken off of them after the flute. Well, the flute's taken off last, basically, but you have all these flakes taken off and they're large flakes, whereas the gainy points are much smaller flakes with more strikes to create those. Oh, okay. So more time intensive to create a gainy. Mm-hmm. But I don't know if that gives it some kind of advantage or if that was literally just how somebody did it. Just how they did it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They yeah. just didn't know any better and just yeah. like, this is how we're going to do it. Same thing with Clovis. Right. So. People are still people. We always have to yeah. remember that. Like, yeah. people are people and if if it ain't broke, don't fix it, right? Like, like if what they were doing worked, why would they change yeah. it? And finally, they're bringing in some other scientists. They've sent some of these points off to a Colorado lab that will be doing protein analysis that will determine the animals and plants that these spear points may have been used on. So that's pretty cool, bringing in some other sciences. Yeah, I like that because I think it'll help them narrow in on exactly what these people were doing there and and their lifestyle, you know? So that's cool. I hope they can get some really good data from those resources. Yeah. All right. Well, let's head from the United States and finding these prehistoric paleo treasures to some more recent treasures as determined by the name of the article. I hate it when they use the word treasure in an article. (laughs) It gives archaeology a bad rap, man. That's right. We're headed to Poland. Back in a minute. You may have heard my pitch for membership. It's a great idea and really helps out. However, you can also support us by picking up a fun t-shirt, sticker, or something from a large selection of items from our T Public store. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash shop for a link. That's arcpodnet.com slash shop to pick up some fun swag and support the show. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. 
Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Welcome back to the third and final segment of episode 138 of the Archaeology Show. And as I said, we're going to Poland. We're actually moving forward in time compared to the other two articles, but... We're still super old here, like 2300 to 1800 BCE. So right. this is a episode full of old stories. That's right. And not treasure, damn it. I know. So this article is called Farmer Finds Rare Treasures from, and I am going to get this wrong, Unitice or Unit, I don't know, U-N-E-T-I-C-E. And there are some weird characters over the U and the E. So, <laughs> But they're Unity? culture. Yeah, something like that. Let's go with Unity. Yeah. Sulison County of Poland, also pronouncing that wrong. But this is another example where somebody found something in farmland. Again, mm-hmm. plow zones. Yep. Right? So this one was found by a farmer, though. And the culture that is related here is also called, now we said unit, unitize or whatever it is. It's also called the Enjutitz. And Jutits culture? I don't really know. Mm-hmm. Anyway, like Rachel said, dated to 2300 to 1800 BC. Now, these sites and this culture have been identified across the Czech Republic, Slovakia, Germany, and Poland. Quite the range. This site dates to the start of the Central European Bronze Age, and that's pretty much what was found. This farmer found metal objects and then contacted the authorities, which resulted in an archaeological assessment and excavation. Again, two examples of people basically doing the right thing, yeah. which is pretty cool. So They recovered three scepters, three Bronze Age daggers, a hatchet, a chisel, and several other metal artifacts. It just says metal artifacts probably because they didn't really know what they were used for. But these look, man, these are super cool. Yeah. I think to do bronze like this, you need to cast it, if I'm not mistaken. Like, you need to build something around it and pour the molten material in. I don't think these were pounded out. Probably. They must, I mean, when you look at them and you see the... The detail. The Yeah, and the, like, the the point like sticking off them they yeah. look like torture devices like yeah, they're, they don't look they're, pleasant no they're labeled as the daggers i think this first picture and i'm like which is the dagger end it looks like you can kill somebody with any of them <laughs> yeah when you're looking at this the the pointy end is down that would have been the dagger yeah and then yeah. the wooden handle would have been around the rest of it that's why there's points there oh so the wood would, would like squished stick onto to the it. oh okay. and probably All two right. halves of a piece of wood or something like that and then wrapped uh-huh. With, with a handle or something. Okay. And then the there's a flat piece out to the left in the picture. It, I mean, if I'm not mistaken, that is like you're holding that with your thumb under that part. And that's kind of a protection against like the hilt of a sword. Oh. It's kind of a protection against something else hitting you there. Okay. So. Oh, I see. Okay. That yeah. makes sense. It's like a shield for your thumb. All right. Yeah. Well, I don't really know a whole lot about yeah. <laughs> really old daggers, so this is interesting for yeah, that reason. Yeah, really old dagger knowledge is actually <laughs> staggeringly good. So, yeah. I don't know. You're not really uh, yeah. got to bring it, bring uh, it a little better here. I think. I guess so. <laughs> anyway, the metal industry with this culture was, and I guess this is based on what we found, was concerned with producing weapons and ornaments mainly as status symbols for high-ranking people, rather than for equipping soldiers or for domestic use. So they must be able to tell with other Bronze Age artifacts as a comparison that these are 
eh, less functional and more ornamental. Gotcha. Yeah. So these artifacts could have been buried just for storage. Like, I don't know, maybe there was a house there or maybe somebody just was like, I'm going to I'm gonna bury these out here in case I need them again. Hmm. Or it says, Rich is hidden because of enemy action or conflict. So, oh my God, who's that coming through the trees? Bury the, bury the good stuff. <laughs> right. Hide yeah. it now. <laughs> I suppose it's possible that like it was just like left in a structure and then the structure collapsed and eventually yeah. went away. And then you, you have this and it looks like a cache of some sort, but yeah. it's just the remnants of people living somewhere. Yeah, we always call those kinds of things caches when we find them over here. Like we found a, remember that cache of stone yeah. points that I found? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we, we call them caches here. But often I hear in Europe, they are always referred to as a hoard, whether it's oh. coins or whatever. Okay. And, and the article even says that. It, this is the second hoard to be found in this area this year. Oh, okay. Yeah. So that's like a European term, maybe it's for- it's just a preferred term that they have. Grouping of artifacts. Okay, cool. Yeah. I'm d- I can so. get down with that. A hoard. And, and it might be- Specifically related to something somebody intentionally buried, like they're, like they're hoarding yeah. artifacts, or they're hoarding their to their objects right here, whatever those mm-hmm. may be, and that's where it is. Or that really is just the term. I don't really know. So. That's true, and they are kind of indicating that they think that these might have been buried on purpose, mm-hmm. based on like the wording. So. Yeah. If it was buried on purpose, then yeah, like hoard would be the right word for that. Because right. They're trying to protect it and intending to come back to it. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. I just wonder how you could know that, though. How do you know that it's buried on purpose versus discarded or forgotten about? Well, if if it were forgotten about, I mean, discarded, they wouldn't be all together, I wouldn't think. Unless they're in a privy. Well, that's true. Forgotten about, for sure. Otherwise, they wouldn't be here. Yeah. So, all mixed together. But... Anyway, that's pretty much it. Pretty short article on that one, yeah. uh, but it's really neat. I thought it was good to highlight the the farmer find and doing the right thing and calling the authorities. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they're not going to come take your land. They just want to see what's there and learn from it. Yeah, exactly. And it, it turned into an excavation, which I'm sure the farmer was, you know, gracious enough to allow them to do that, which is, yeah. which is really great. And, you know, if you're a person out there that owns land and you think that there might be something buried on it, then... Don't do anything yourself, right. but call in the authorities, and then you might get to like learn about the yeah. the prehistory of of your area of your your land that you own. And in the United States, you generally own anything that is found on your land. Mm-hmm. That's how land ownership works here, with the exception of like mineral and water rights. Those are very different, but. Mm-hmm. Things like this, you technically do. They belong to you, and it's up to you to say, well, I want to donate these. I want to send them back to wherever, or if you just want to keep it, you can. But that's not the case in a lot of other countries. Oh, true. So keep that in mind if yeah. you're, like, I don't know what the case is in Poland, but like in the UK, the crown basically owns everything under the ground. They do. That's right. Because you hear <laughs> so, about people finding like hordes of coins yeah. and stuff like that, and they have to turn it over. The queen's <laughs> like, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> so, Our coffers were running low. Thank you. That's right. That's right. She was running out of hats to wear. So. I don't think that lady has ever run out of hat. Yeah, probably not. <laughs> All right. So that is it for this week. So next week, we have a really fun episode for you guys. We're going to watch the movie Ammonite, which came out last year. I know we kind of missed the boat on that one. We probably should have talked about it last year, but we're doing it now. So, you know, grab your streaming service. Hulu, I think, is the one that it is streaming on, or or you can purchase it at the various places and, and give it a watch because it's a not accurate <laughs> representation <laughs> Of a real person named Mary Anning, and she was a self-taught paleontologist in England in the 1800s. So her story is really cool. This is 
tangential to archaeology. So, like, let's just go ahead and, you know, mm-hmm. it's not archaeology, but fine. It's cool. And she was cool and she deserves a spotlight on her. So watch that movie if you want to. We're going to talk about the movie. We're going to talk about her and we're going to talk about what they got right and wrong in the movie. We haven't actually watched it yet, so I'm sure we're going to have lots to say about that. So, yeah, join us next week. All right. See you next week. See ya. Thanks for listening to The Archaeology Show. Feel free to comment and view the show notes on the website at www.archpodnet.com. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at ArcPodNet. Music for this show is called I Wish You Would Look from the band Sea Hero. Again, thanks for listening and have an awesome day. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV Traveling America, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info.